Welcome to Sugar Nutmeg. This is Alexandra. And this is Ruth. When Ruth and I started Sugar Nutmeg, we wanted it to be an extension of the conversations that we have in our living rooms. Well, in this episode, you get a very close taste of that between three Indonesian women in diaspora talking about everything from migration to martabak to motherhood to madonnas, from imagination to imperialism to immigrant struggles. Cynthia Dewi Oka is an award-winning poet, dancer, professor, community leader, teacher, and all-round multidisciplinary artist. She hails from Denpasar, a town in southern part of Bali, Indonesia, and has lived in Java or Jawa, Vancouver, Canada, and the United States. But what are borders and nation-states really? What does it mean to move across borders? What does it take to imagine new lives and nurture memories from past lives? Yeah, I, I really got to know the community in South Philly after Trump's election in 2016. Um, I was working for a national organization at the time and um, learned that, I mean, obviously there were massive concerns about what he was going to do with immigrants because of his anti-immigrant rhetoric. And we've seen obviously that he carried out most of those policies. Um, and... I learned about the that there was a high number of undocumented Indonesians actually in South Philly, probably the largest concentration in the country. More um, than San Francisco? In terms of concentration, I believe yes. Like, because they're all, like, all the Indonesians are kind of, like, clustered in, like, a 10-block radius. And um, they, there was, like, an organization, a local organization in Philadelphia that was working with undocumented immigrants, and I had offered to do some um, interpretation if needed, and instead they, like, recruited me to organize because there was no one, there was, like, there, there was just, like, not people who speak the language and have organizing experience and I'd been organizing for a long time Mm -hmm. so I left um, my national job and worked in Philly for a year to just set up the infrastructure and I think we we did some really really good work Um, met with the mayor personally lots of like um, state reps Um, we did like one time we did this massive, like all of the churches, there are like 14 churches in uh, Indonesian churches in Philadelphia. And we got everybody together one evening because people were afraid. So basically the Indonesians were afraid to come to know your rights trainings because they would be outed as being un- like, if you go to a know your rights training, it's like basically saying I'm undocumented. I need to know my rights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot of people in the community didn't like they wouldn't even tell each other what their status were because mm, yeah yeah, um, ICE yeah a lot of Indonesians do that yeah and not only and, Indonesian but a lot of like any other immigrants but yeah. secretive about that yeah so so I also um had I did some interp- interpreting oh work. you know yeah well yeah um but I found out that like people were sharing their lawyers um people were sharing information for lawyers who can actually help undocumented immigrants mm-hmm. um apply for asylum status refugee status. what what is the like um asylum status right mm-hmm. um and I I guess like I didn't know they were that secretive within their own community I didn't know either. It was like pretty, I mean, the other thing was that like ICE had a, ICE was using informants from the community. 
So yeah. that was like a thing, right? Like they, mm-hmm. they actually have a huge binder um, of like, and, and, and they would ask people like to point at other people mm-hmm. or them to get a stay or like whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, there's like this mix of like, it is known that there's a lot of undocumented people. So like there's like resources internally that are shared and people like develop all kinds of strategies. Like they have like their own, like, I don't know. I used to call it like the Indonesian Uber system um, to get people back and forth to work, you know, because you're not supposed to be able to drive. You're not even, you're obviously not supposed to be able to work, um, but also like to drive. So people had like these like ride shares and all kinds of things. And like, we're just, um, self-sustaining and actually in a lot of ways that was like incredibly impressive given that um there's no services from the government there's like there's not even language like interpretation service yeah yeah you know what i mean so it's it's not like spanish exactly like so people totally had to take care of each other and themselves um and it sits against this like other tension of there was there was a lot of mistrust at the same time so we actually like did uh, like a night of prayer and like that one hundreds of people came to and it was like we had dances and like lots of food and performances. And then in the middle, we fit in a skit. <laughs> yeah. I love uh, it. To know your rights and just like we just slipped it in the middle there. And it was like safe because everybody came thinking it was like a night of prayer. Mm. And then everybody also got, like, educated on, like, this is what you do if you get stopped in the road. This is, like, what you do, like, if they come and knock on your door and stuff like that. It was, like, a 10-minute thing, like, maybe 10, 15-minute thing squished in the middle of this, like, and you know how Indonesian events are. It's, like, this entire (laughs) evening of, like, all the things. So, From what you've gathered, why a lot of Indonesians come to Philly, specifically? You know, Is it because already, there are already tons of Indonesians there, so... They've established a system. And then, yeah. Or is it because it's close to New York and people Mm. more, you know, attracted to working Mm. in New York? Um, I think partly, I think definitely, like, once a lot of people came here, it became, like, it had a snowball effect, right? Because then there's networks, there's, like, systems set up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think, like, a major thing is that, you know, like, it's so much more affordable. Yeah. Um, than New York and I think that that's been a distinct experience for me here because I used to live in Vancouver and there was an Indonesian diaspora there but very small very spread out like people lived in different towns um, at least like 30 to 45 minutes away from each other and it was like a very different class of people so it was hard for me growing up in Vancouver because my family was like super working class like actually like below poverty line and um sort of like the other Indonesians are like wealthy um and there's like definitely it's it's just different you know whereas Mm -hmm. like in like it was hard to kind of like do stuff together I I felt it was difficult because like we couldn't afford a lot of things Mm -hmm. and in Philly it's really different it's like super working class it's not that there aren't like Indonesians with wealth. Like I'm not saying that there's like a lot as well, but in terms of the general tone of the community who people are like the vast majority that I've seen are like working class folks. Yeah. I've heard that now Vancouver is like the spot for like a rich young Asians or something. 
Oh, like Chi- China investments. Yeah, they have like their own TV shows. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was already starting, right? Like when my family moved there in the mid 1990s, um, because there was an explicit Canadian policy. Like it was a policy of the Canadian government to bring um, Asian money. Mm, yeah. So like, like it's, it was basically like if you have a certain amount, I believe it's like $10 million or something like that. Um, it was like a way for you to buy citizenship. Mm. So a lot of the people, like the first really big wave were folks from Hong Kong because people, a lot of people were moving there. Um, Cause you know, it's like another former British colony, but there was also uh real estate that they could buy up. And they, I mean, the like East Asians played a massive role in gentrifying the crap out of Vancouver. Like it's crazy. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and they came there because they were trying to avoid the repatriation of Hong Kong to China. Mm. So that was like the really, the first big wave. When I first moved there, like my, we went, I went to elementary school and there were a lot of Asians. They were all Cantonese speaking. Mm. Like I actually couldn't access, they put, I had to be put into ESL because I didn't speak English. And within two weeks, I was expelled out of ESL because they were like, we can't actually help you here. Like the entire curriculum is built for Cantonese speakers. So I I teach myself English because like even the ESL class couldn't, they were like, we can't accommodate you. So it's like an ESL class, but like ESL specifically for Cantonese (laughs) speakers. Specifically for Cantonese speakers. So can I ask why your family decided to move to Vancouver when there wasn't like a, you know, like Mm. an established Indonesian community there the way there is in San Francisco or Philly? Uh, (laughs) My father had always wanted to move abroad. I think, I mean, he really wanted to move to the United States since, you know, ever since like before I can remember like he was I remember when I was like six or seven years old he asked me if I would call him daddy um wow. I mean and I was like uh no that's weird <laughs> 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 like no. uh but he wanted he really wanted to like he just had this fantasy of like you know like the the American dream got sold to a lot of people and he was legitimately I think you know um my mom being Chinese Indonesian was like an issue. My dad was like, you know, like he couldn't take her to like um, conferences or mm-hmm. galas because like people would like say shit to him um, and make fun of her. And she had a really, really hard life. Um, and and this was in Bali. This was in Bali, but they were, so my dad's family is from Bali, but my mom uh, was born in Jogja and her dad was a direct, like her, her dad, came from China. Mm-hmm. So um she was a foreign, she was a foreigner. Like mm-hmm. until the her even though she was born there, she was a foreigner. My dad had to sponsor her for her to get Indonesian citizenship. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like crazy. Like I have all my un- like I have all these uncles and from my mom's side, none of whom married their partners legally because it because the the status your status in Indonesia is like passed down through your dad so if your dad is a foreigner you're a foreigner Uh, and they inherited their dad's status as foreigners so if they married legally their children would be foreigners but I thought they have this program where you know Chinese people can adopt Indonesian names and then they they automatically become like Mm-mm. The changing of that, the name is the, the same thing as getting citizenship. So my mom had an Indonesian name. 
like she got like when she was 18 she like came in and like did her paperwork to like have an an assimilated name but it wasn't until she married my dad that she was able to get citizenship oh i see it was just like a way for you to like you know to get by in like with life yeah it's like it's like formal assimilation it's it's like a symbolic assimilation Yeah. 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 yeah yeah i mean there were still so many barriers like she uh slipped into like nursing school the one year they didn't put a restriction on foreigners, for example. And there was just like, and she wanted to go to medical school, but like that wasn't an option for someone with her status. Mm-hmm. So it's like stuff like that. And um, my dad always wanted to move abroad. They, he kept trying multiple times, didn't get the lottery to the United States because mm-hmm. that was the system at the time was the lottery. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I believe, yeah, it was like some, like 1994 or something. Like he and my mom uh, went with my uncle to Canada. It was like for shits and giggles. And they kind of, and my uncle was like, why don't you just try applying to Canada and see what happens? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were immediately accepted. Um, like six months later, by immediately, <laughs> um, they got news that they were accepted. So that's how we ended up in Canada. And, you know, like my parents are also like very religious people. And they believed that they were meant to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, I mean, I grew up with the whole like... Israelis like mm. story of like you cross the desert you yeah. go to the promised land, promised land. Yeah. <laughs> but is there or Destiny. was there is there or was there like a Chinese like community in Bali because <clears throat> I've never I've never like stumbled upon like you know an area where there's like a Chinese people live in like or Chinatown in Bali I mean Mm-mm, not that no. I know of. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was growing up, it was, I mean, really the church was your community and that was the Chinese Indonesian community. And it's like super mixed, obviously, but um, in terms of like who predominates and uh, and they were really, you know, I don't know. I think growing up, it, w- it was confusing for me because mm-hmm. my parents, well, first of all, they were very disappointed like, people were disappointed when I was born because I was dark. So I was a lot darker when I was a kid. Like, um, and then later when I grew up and started going to school, they were like, this could work for us because she can pass. <laughs> mm. And oh, the whole thing was that, like, I, they never told me. They never, they were never like, you are Chinese Indonesian. Mm. They never did that. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't dark either, but my parents also never told me like, hey, you're like Chindo. They, it was just like, oh, okay. Like, um, you know, I guess like growing up, it was just like, oh, we're all Indonesians all together. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until I went back there as an adult that I was like, oh, like people see me differently. It's like awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really didn't know until I remember I got in trouble um, one year in elementary school. Um, our teacher in class asked a really weird question. She asked, Who here calls their parents um, Ibu and Aya? And people put up their hands. Mm-hmm. And who here calls their parents Mama and Papa? Hmm. Uh... You're like a kid. You're just like, oh my God. And I came Uh home and I told my parents and they freaked. They were like, that's how they outed you. 
They were wow. so upset. That was the first time that I realized I was like, something's not right. Because like, why am I getting in trouble for, I thought I accomplished something. <laughs> like, I was like, cause I was like, like you're special. I was like, I'm special. <laughs> and they were like, why did you do that? And I remember they had a meeting. Um, they had a meeting and everything with the principal. Like it was like a whole thing. Wow. Um, because they were like, this is totally inappropriate. Like that was such a way to find out who is Chinese Indonesian in the room. And was there, was, was it really just you alone? It was like three people in class. Mm, and I, that, and I came home and I was like, we're so special. There was only three of us. <laughs> they were like, no, and it's a classroom of 60 kids, you know? And mm. so, so did, did anything happen after that? Or was it just like, oh, okay. So now we know who the three people are and like, you know, um, we know how to mm. treat them differently or, or did something happen <laughs> afterwards? So I'll tell you something funny is that, uh, my parents were really, they made it very clear to me. They were like, okay, now you're going to have to work harder in school. You have to be the best. Mm-hmm. And so I held, I actually still hold for a small moment of pride for me. I still hold the longest track for the number one ranking in my old school because I would just get number one, number one, number one, number one every uh, um, uh, semester. <sighs> because my parents, like, they were like, you have to be the best so they can't touch you. Mm-hmm. this is literally your whole ass job, you know, mm-hmm. and they were Nazis about it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. totally, like, it was like not okay. But what was funny was that I was a dancer when I was a kid. So like I danced all the time. We mm-hmm. had like ballet, we were performing all the time. Like I still dance a lot to this day. And we had Balinese, like in Bali, you have to have Balinese dance class. Mm-hmm. And that was the one place every semester, no matter how did how well I did, oh, they always they gave me a C. Me. They mm. always gave me a C, mm. no matter what. So in all of the other classes, I would have like 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Mm. And then that one class, no matter what, they would just give me the barely passing grade, no mm. matter what. So that is a way. That's That's one way it showed up. Because they couldn't, like, the other stuff, it's like the tests are objective, right? Mm, it's like, you yeah. can't, mm, it's right mm, or wrong. Like, mm. there's no subjective thinking. There's, like, no opinion mm. in Indonesian school. Mm, mm. Like, you're not asked for, you're not supposed to. Like, you mm. copy things and regurgitate. There's a very clear wrong or right answer to everything. Yeah. So, in all of that stuff, blamo. But the one area... The Balinese sense where they wanted to make sure I knew who the fuck I was, that I was not one of them. That was that was a class. Yeah. yeah. Every year, the same grade. So Every, so how does that the case? It, for example, if there is like a Japanese girl mm-hmm. in Bali, would they like did they fail also the, the Japanese girl? No. no. Oh wow. Just like, Do you mean uh Orang Jawa? Yeah, Orang Jawa. Yeah. I mean like from because there there is also like a tension there's a tension between like Balinese and Javanese as well Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but not that I know of basically so I guess in one of your interview you said that Denpasar is one of the places that inspired your writings Mm -hmm. so what is the Denpasar that that you in your head is this the Denpasar (laughs) that this discrimination (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or is it the you know the the heaven of Bali 
it's so like intense when I go back because every time I go back, it's like so much there's like stuff that's still the same like i will like even recognize like you know i'll recognize like the same streets that i'm not and like all of this stuff and even specific buildings or like store strips but so much has also changed i think the biggest thing is um the loss of the sawah mm. because when mm. i was growing up there was still sawah everywhere mm. and we used to do pe in the sawah what is pe in the paddy fields um gym gym class oh yeah Yeah. so they would make you run you know the the uh the borders between the paddy fields like where it's wet wait so so did you guys wear tennis make us run did you wear tennis shoes running in the sawa because you can't really wear shoes running in the sawa right oh yeah i mean we just wore so they had a dress code like on what kind of shoes you can wear to school Mm. so i had i always had these like they're kind of like sneakers, but with the Velcro straps. Mm. Uh-huh. And you just wear the same shoes to, like, school to, to whatever. But, like, that's what they would do. It's like, uh-huh. we wouldn't be bare feet. Uh-huh. And they would tell you to run down the, mm. the middles of the paddy field. Mm. And, like, and I fell in. I remember, like, one one year I fell in and I came out, like, and I had, like, leeches, like, <laughs> all over my legs. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, but yeah, there was sawa everywhere. I really remember that a lot. And, um, that's the Denbasar. I remember it was a lot greener and I don't know. It's still like, it's still my happy place, mm-hmm. you know, and it doesn't exist anymore. Like it's, a, it's my happy place in my head yeah. because mm-hmm. I really loved living there. It was just beautiful. And I remember like that and the stars, Mm, yeah. because at night like now the light pollution is yeah. bad enough that you know unless you're like out like in Ubud or something because Ubud is still pretty um there's still a lot of like even though it's like super touristy now like that's part of the brand right yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. nature yoga like whatever um but back then in Denpasar like I remember it's like every night you look up and it's like the spray of stars they were so clear yeah like you could see like every dot and like billions of them and like now you can't really yeah yeah i because now it's like all of these um influencers are i mean there's the whole kristen gray um thing that happened but also like a lot of these youtubers have built their houses there and they built their houses in a sawa and like now we're losing all of the sawa to like these fancy new minimalistic you know modern contemporary like architecture kind of houses in the middle of the sawa um well the sawa has become basically commodified now it's like it's not it's yeah yeah. right it's like it's part of the tourism package yeah 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 So how how was like your experience going back? Because d- did you go back every year or did you have a long time where you were living away from Bali and then you went back for Ubud Writers and Readers Festival? It's very expensive to go back. So my family actually, with my family, I only went back twice since we moved. The first time we went back to Jawa and we stayed only in Jawa because my mom's family was all there mm-hmm. and then the second time was in 2006 and I went no actually only one time that one time that's it 
And then my dad died. And I went back in 2006 by myself to Bali. And I also stayed in Jawa for a little bit. And then I went back again in 2013, also only to Bali. And then, um, yeah, and then 2019, I went for the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. And that one, we were, you know, in Bali and Kalimantan. And then uh, the last leg of the trip was in Jakarta. Yeah, you you taught poetry workshops in Kalimantan, right? Yeah. How, I mean, they were really like, you know, like you're like speaking to hundreds of people and they call that a workshop. Ah, uh, okay. So so it wasn't like a, a writing workshop where people actually like wrote, you know, poetry. No, I would have loved to do something like that, but they made it like this really kind of, I mean, and I didn't mind, you know, like you meet a lot of people like, and it was a very interesting experience because I, I went there with Jenny and we were, uh, I love Jen- Jenny Zhang, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah, a good I love friend. Her work. Yeah. She's, she's dope. And we were, we were like mobbed. It was like, we had never, like, we're just like, what is happening? <laughs> Wait, like in Kalimantan, you guys were mobbed? Like the fandom, because people, and it's not even us. It's just like folks were so excited that there were like international, whatever, Indonesian, Asian Mm. writers. Mm. And we were mobbed and like all these folks came with like their, um, so all the, like the, it, it was just like we had just never experienced anything like that. I know I have like Jenny probably has, but like I certainly haven't. I was so overwhelmed. I was like, what's happening? There's like a line of people wanting to do selfies with you. It's just like, what's going on? And then folks brought their products. Like um, to bring to the stage for us to take no for us to take pictures with their products. <laughs> oh for their social my media. god. I, I swear to God, like jewelry, um, <laughs> Tupperware. Like, it was like crazy. It was like, like are we sponsoring? <laughs> What's going on? But yeah, like a ton of people would come with their merchandise yeah. and ask us to take pictures. So we were like, okay. Um, so yeah, that was Kalimantan. It was it was amazing. There was there was a, a, a smaller workshop that I was supposed to do with emerging writers at the festival, but my flight was delayed. So I ended up not being able to come because I didn't get in until like 12 hours later. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, that was, it was a dream. I really that was such a great experience so you didn't feel like oh like this isn't the indonesia that i know or this isn't the bali that i knew growing up anymore um i mean i I feel like that feeling is always there i think what was lovely about coming back for the ubud festival was i mean i got i came back on my own terms like i came back as a writer Right, right, yeah. And I think that is very different from coming back as like whatever kind of role you have in your family. Mm-hmm. And I am a black sheep in my family. I was a teen mom. <laughs> like, you know, so I think the the previous couple of times that I came back, um it was difficult mm-hmm. because you can't really I mean, apart from Bali and even even in Bali, it's like different. It's not comfortable to travel by yourself as a woman, right? Like it's just not comfortable. Like people like harass you and all this stuff. And so you had to be with family, but then the dynamics with the family can make it really difficult if you are not, if you are 
anything other than the ideal Indonesian girl. So yeah, it was, it was lovely to just kind of come back as what I am now and meet with so many Indonesian, just meet Indonesian writers. I like, and you know, part of the appeal of the festival is just like international writers, like everybody. And I just like, I only hung out with like the Indos because I was just like, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's always the best. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because like when you speak the language and you're just like, oh, like all of these foreigners, they want to like do their own thing and I'm going to do like what I know. Exactly. Cause like, and my partner was like, are you networking? I was like, fuck no. She's like, I'm making friends. But when you speak Indonesian, you have this like thick Japanese accent. I know. Um, yeah because and everybody says that right like it's also just like confusing (laughs) but it's because we spent a lot of time in Jawa when I was a kid um because my mom had just like a huge family there so we we always went we like went twice a year to Jogja and Surabaya and I learned to talk a lot like my cousins because I spent so much time with them Uh, yeah mm. and for some reason like I can't hear it you know and I will try I'll be like okay I need to make my Indonesian more Indonesian but it just doesn't work people are just like (laughs) (laughs) no but I think no but sometimes when people have that Madok accent when they speak English you can also hear it but you you completely don't have that Madok in your when you speak English, I think. Just switched over completely. <laughs> no, but I think I think it's good. It's good though, because I feel like now, like the new generation of Indonesians speak Indonesian with this like Americanized accent. And there's so many loan right. words now, like English loan words that mm. have infiltrated the Indonesian language. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I guess there's a part of me that just feels like, yeah, like, yeah, you know, kalau masih medok ya bagus. It means yeah. it's still, it's still there. <laughs> masih kental. Masih kental, kental. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I mean, I think it's it's uh, I, it's confusing when I'm in Bali, right? Because I'll be like, I'm from here, and they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you're Canadian, you live in America, you send Jawa. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on here? But yeah, I mean, it's it's just, you know, certain, I don't know, you know, what's funny is like, because, so what, uh, Ruth, what you were saying about Mm. like how Madoc like also comes out in English. So my English was like that, obviously, for the first few years after I moved. And actually, it was so difficult for me to, like, learn how to speak English Uh because my madat was so heavy. And you know what actually taught me to speak was hip-hop. Oh. Because hip-hop is, like, super, it's, like, very accented, right? It's, like, it's it's madat in its own way. And, like, that was how I learned to, like be comfortable with English in my mouth was like mm. memorizing like Biggie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seriously, like Juicy was like my first. Like I would recite Juicy all the time. I love get, that. Like all of the the sounds like um it felt comfortable. That makes sense now that you're a poet because that must have been like an easy transition into poetry because hip hop is like really poetic like the rhythm and mm. 
everything, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Like, and so I don't know, like, did that affect why you chose to, you know, write poems? Um, I never thought about it like that. I like that. I might steal that for the future. <laughs> um, I, I mean, hip hop was obviously a really important influence for me growing up. It was just like the soundscape. And I think there were, I actually just finished, I have a poem coming out on Academy of American Poets next month. And like, I was actually just talking, cause we had to write like an about the poem. And this poem was actually um, about the roots. Um, and, you know, something I was, I think it's actually less the form um, than it is the bravado that because the thing was, you know, I was adrift. Like it was like I was cut off from my contacts completely. I didn't know Mm. any other Indonesian kids at school growing up. Mm. The the post-migration process also was very hard and traumatic for my family. And I felt like... I don't know. It was like, I didn't know who I was, you know, or how to be in the world. Like, um, I got bullied a lot and, um, hip hop was really what allowed me to access a sense of pride, a sense of like, fuck the world. I got this, you know, and you kind of need that. Like when you're like a kid and you actually like, don't have a lot of power and so that you don't give in to sort of like your circumstances so and I I think a lot of like art has been that's been art for me but in terms of how I started writing poetry it's actually very practical it was the only form of art I could do while I was a mom while I was a single mom and I did painting before that piano I was like dancing and all this stuff and then I got pregnant at 17 and I was I had to give up my, I was actually building a portfolio to go to, to go to art school and I had to drop it. I remember switching and taking marketing instead because I was just like, I have to be able to make money. Um, and I went to college, uh, studied political science and, um, but you know, like if you're driven to create, like you have to find a medium and the medium that I could afford like poetry doesn't cost you. I mean, poetry costs you like your life, but it doesn't cost money. Like I used to write on my, like, you know, poems started out, like I, I'd write them in textbooks on newspapers. Yeah. I, I read an, an interview where you said you were writing like your poems on like the margins of um, yeah, like the news. That was a thing. Or like, like napkins. napkins. Yeah. I lost, like I didn't know. I lost a lot of them. Because it was not even, like, I wasn't making it to, like, publish. Mm-hmm. I was doing it to sort of preserve my own voice, to hear my own voice. Because all, otherwise, like, the rest of my life was, like, everybody else's voices. That, like, you're a failure. You're terrible. You're a disease upon society. La, 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 la. And I still had to get up and do my job every day. So, it was super practical for <laughs> reason. But of course, um, to go back to your initial comments, like, of course, like hip hop has been a massive influence. Like, I mean, I think that there is definitely strains of it in my work. Did you grow up with Indonesian literatures or reading any Indonesian like poems or they weren't accessible at the time? 
or you weren't introduced? When I was in Indonesia, I mean, I was a really avid reader since mm-hmm. I was a kid, like just love, love reading. So I read all the time, whatever was in the library at my school, um, lots of legends. I loved reading legends and also they were one of the few non-censored forms <laughs> and you know what I'm saying but like there wasn't a lot of like the way that we think about literature is like didn't exist when I was growing up in Indonesia because I lived there until I was like 10 and the books that we had access to yeah it's just like it's legends it's like moral fables it's like stories about being like a good person and 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 then later in Canada very hard to access very hard to access because there's not a lot of translated um Indonesian writers they don't make it all the way out there hopefully that's changing you know um I had to kind of I don't remember like how I dug up like Ramudia when I was like in my late teens but Mm. It wasn't until my late teens that I like read mm. all of his work, for example, and then started tracking down other Indonesian Gairila and Anwar, or like all of these people. Like it's it's not until later, you know, that um so yeah. And my parents, uh, the last thing I'll say is like my parents, because they were very religious, they also like didn't want me to read anything about the Bible. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that's what they wanted me to read and the separation, I think part of the reason the migration was so traumatic was because they really didn't want to look back at all. It was like after we moved, Indonesia disappeared. Like we never talked about it at home. There was no space for mourning what we left. It was just like, this is the new life. This is what we focus on. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. Right. Until yeah. you, until you, in your late teen, you mm-hmm. rediscovered Indonesia again. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think for a long time, I actually, it was really annoying to explain to people what Indonesia was. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you guys experienced this, but I definitely like a lot. Yeah. What is that? Where is it? What are you? Where is that? Is that a thing? So, so, but like, which part? Like Thailand? Oh my God. But then yeah. you're from Bali and everyone knows Bali. But if I say I'm from Bandung, people are like, where the fuck is that? Uh, the birth of the non-aligned movement. <laughs> which is yeah. why you have the Global South today. Thank you. <laughs> we, so I actually see that you have the Jakarta Method book behind you. Um, where is it? It's behind, it's like there, right behind you. Right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we just like, so we, I mean, it was a while ago, but we, we did talk to Vincent and it's interesting too, because Bali is the, um, the biggest, most affected site of the massacres. Um, but nobody knows about that. And uh, like these hotels and resorts are built like either on the mass graves or like right beside the mass graves. And again, nobody knows about that. But I wonder like you growing up there or um, going back there and and knowing the, lo- like, you know, interacting with the locals, like, is it different for people who are in Bali? Like, do, do they or do you guys have a different context versus someone from like maybe Jakarta going there and like not knowing the history of that? You know, um... I will say this is, I don't know, I, I there's a book called The Dark Side of Paradise. Um, and I, that was actually the, I read that when I was, what, uh, maybe 19. 
I think 19 maybe. And uh, that was where I first learned about uh, the massacres that happened in Bali. So like the whole thing actually focuses on Bali. Um, So this is an awesome sort of like deepening of that conversation. And, And I think you're right. I think there is like a, it's weird to come home with information that is only accessible to you because you're not home. Mm-hmm. That's only allowable and permissible to you when you're at home. And um, I can only speak from my experience, from my, and uh, I can't generalize to like other felonies. Um, what I do know is that people that I have met who are locals, um, and who are friends, who I'm friends with, like, are not exactly, they don't want to talk about it. It's not, so, because I, I think that the flip side of it is that the propaganda, like we, the propaganda machine set up in the New Order was very effective. Mm. It was very effective. Like, I mean, all these school children had to watch it every year, and it's yeah. four hours long. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, so long. <laughs> And everyone had to watch it. And I think from, to be honest, like the most common experience I have with Indonesians who are in Indonesia, and again, I cannot generalize. I mean, it's not like I have tons of people there anymore, is that the propaganda is what's true. That film is what's true for people. That is from my observation. So it's really hard to kind of like have some of these conversations. I remember in 2013, when I came back, um, I was already, I was like at at a villa with a few people. Um, It was like a a family friends. So I was like visiting there. He had um, some artists who were hanging out. And I remember asking them, I would love, you know, my dream is to be able to talk to some of the survivors of that period. Mm. And I was shushed immediately. Like we were like in the cuts, like we were in a village, like in the cuts. And they were just like, you shouldn't be talking about this mm-hmm. here right now, you know? Uh, and it's like, it's it's not safe. And I'm just like, it's 2013. Like what is going on? Like we're watching the elections for Jokowi, right? <laughs> like, what's going on? Like we're watching the debates. And um, yeah, that's still... That it's a very, it's like people don't want to go there from what I have observed. Yeah. Yeah. Folks want to talk about 98. Really? Like that's much more common for people Mm. to want to talk about, about 98. Mm. And even out here with like the community, the South Philly diaspora, like that is the the one that's on top. Mm. But there is kind of like this disconnect from like the fact that it was, I mean, it's obviously a child of 65 and 65 is obviously a child of like 425 years of colonization. And like, but it's like, it like ends at 98. Right. So interesting. It is interesting. Because it's easier, because it's easier to talk about 98 um, because like there wasn't a propaganda film that has been built around that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, possibly there wasn't like 31 years of indoctrination. Mm, yeah. There mm. wasn't, you know, um, and it was happening, It hap- like right after it happened, you had Reformation, yeah. right? Kind of right. Reform- it's, it's like the Reformacy era. Yeah. 
So there wasn't as much sort of, I think it was just like, I don't know. There wasn't the apparatus to squash it in the same way that existed with kind of like the, with the new order government. And also like the scale wasn't nearly, I mean, like it's like a few thousand versus like up to 3 million people. Yeah. Yeah. And if we think about like who are, who still survives from that period, who still has power from that period. It's like, yeah. imagine the kind of, I think people are, are, you know, I think Indonesia actually poses a lot of really interesting questions about what does it take to be unified? What does it take to survive as a nation? And I, I don't care. Like, I'm not talking about like imperial nations, like you're, you know, like Britain or like America, mm-hmm. but what does it take as a post-colonial, as a previously colonized Mm-hmm. entity mm-hmm. to be able to survive yeah yeah like how would things happen if people were not held together i'm not saying this to be like it was okay to propagandize and like make people mm-hmm. have to like live with folks who murdered their brothers and parents and like whatever mm-hmm. and say that that is okay i'm not saying that at all i think it's it's a gross violation of the basic human right to memory Mm-hmm. right we have to we should have the right to remember the things that we yeah. live through and like that was taken from people like it's like a massive gaslighting campaign mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right yeah. Yeah. and on a really like kind of fundamental level I'm like that's wrong yeah. and and how would the country not come apart is difficult for me to imagine mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, there's like this argument that Indonesia actually is like Japanese uh, imperialism in a way. That is also a thing. Yeah, it's the same. Definitely, yeah. right? Like, and and it's it's just so complicated. Like, there's Japanese that's super real Japanese imperialism, um, and how many people were displaced i i think i'm I'm, i ask those questions because i see what's happening like also in the united states Mm. where it's so clear all of the things that were done wrong Mm. we talk about it all the time look at where we are Mm -hmm. politically in the u.s because people are saying like this shit happened and we have to repair Mm. we have to name we have to acknowledge that these things happen and it's so many things it's so it's like you actually end up having to question like is this a thing worth saving Mm -hmm. right and and i think that there is a parallel to that with the indonesian experiment as well it's like when we get down to sort of like this is what it cost to hold a project together Mm -hmm. a national identity together like is it worth saving yeah if it's not what do you do and that's the abyss that, like, I think a lot of people, like, can't even... I don't know how to approach that abyss. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because the story of the American dream remains the most powerful... I mean, do they even want to go there? Yeah. Do people even want to go there? Do we have the capacity to go there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. what are we... I guess I, I don't know, you know? And I, I feel like that informs so much of, like, my work these days. It's just, like... Mm-hmm. Is reconciliation possible? Right. Is it possible? Like, I don't know. And I'll probably spend the rest of my life asking that question. But I think when we come from, like, people who have been profoundly disenfranchised, dispossessed, what, like, I feel like, I'm like, what's my justice worth? Mm. 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 
because we keep being because the choices that get made tell me that my justice doesn't matter Mm. and I don't have an answer I don't know if like it's my like what's it worth how many lives how many people yeah yeah. Yeah, that's uh (laughs) sorry (laughs) yeah I mean no I'm interested I mean connecting deep Connecting this topic to yeah. my next question. So on Massachusetts Review, you said that your home's American Dreams Ride to Orpheus mm. is inspired by your own curiosity of what happened at the time with the American bombing uh, the Middle East and North Africa, right? Mm-hmm. I'm curious why you send this or like this dream right to Orpheus. Why Orpheus? Uh, are you uh, broken hearted just like Orpheus <laughs> or is this just like waiting for right. I don't know I mean Orpheus is the poet right mm. Orpheus is the poet and he's the poet who looked back at his love when he was told not to and then she got sent back to the underworld you were to see poor you were to see I think that there can be a tendency sometimes to I don't know. I'm I'm very interested in complicity. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in how do you how do I say this? It's like uh, in contamination, mm-hmm. in in whatever the opposite is to purity, to guiltlessness. Mm-hmm. Like I'm really interested in that because I think there's a tendency. I think even in um, that I've seen definitely also in poetry of like. It's like we separate ourselves from the object of our anger or our frustration or um, like America gets set up as like the big bad wolf. Mm. And like it is a big bad bad wolf Mm. and we are in it. Like we are of the big bad wolf. We're in the big bad wolf. So I think to me it was um, there's because there's a cycle of poems and salvage that's just about the drone wars. Mm. And um, it was really after I moved to the United States, it was like one of those things where I'm just like, what does it mean now that I live here to be like in the belly of the beast? And what is my stake in that? Mm. So I think that conversation between the American dream and Orpheus is really, I mean, the American dream is a lie (laughs) and poetry is another kind of lie. And actually, like, that's the truth. Mm. <laughs> so I wanted to close the gap between sort of this idea that we can be, like, poets who legislate the alternatives to the world and who are, like, the lovers and innocents. And actually, no. The American dream is part of, like, this killing is part of the conditions of our being able to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of bring that together. and. Yeah work out my thinking around it yeah like Ruth and I had a discussion kind of about the same issue because um I Mm. think Ruth you said one of your friends said like that um there's no way to be like um to like have there's no way to be nationalistic unless you're actually in the country. So it's Mm -hmm. like, there's no way to speak for Indonesia unless you're in Indonesia or something like that. And then of course, like we've also been Mm. 
uh, scrutinizing this, um, talking to people from like Cambodia and Vietnam mm-hmm. and Laos and um, the dynamics between the people who are there versus the diaspora here and, you know, being, I guess, part of the empire that destroyed um, these countries. That's, uh, it's how, how do you reconcile with that? It's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it is. It's, Totally. Like, how do you make sense of the fact that, like, we now live here and, like, what's our responsibility now? Because, like, the the U.S. is a war economy. Like, mm-hmm. it just, it is. So, like, when you join it and it, you become part of the war economy and it's got moving targets and it's got, it targets parts of its own population. Mm-hmm. I think to me, I don't know, like historical trauma, political violence. I mean, we definitely see this like with like Israel, for example, (laughs) where it creates a kind of like total defensiveness, like where it results in in a closure. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, because this cannot ever happen again, like this is the, the, this is the hard line, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. and I would rather become the bad guy than ever be victimized by the bad guy again. Mm -hmm. And then there's a kind of way of think, of looking, uh, of experiencing trauma. I just don't think that that's the only way. Mm-hmm. I think that trauma can also, historical, political, and also personal, intimate trauma, because these things are all connected, right? Yeah. Um, like what happened to like so many Indonesian, Chinese Indonesian women during 1998, for example, which are like intimate violations of their bodies and integrity. Like that's not separate from the nationalist project. That's not separate from the military dictatorship of the new order regime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like same as here, like the military, the, the war economy is not separate from the fact that one out of three people, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. women in the United States have been sexually assaulted. Like, yeah. they are the same thing. Yeah. Um, they're like resonances of the same thing. There's a way of experiencing trauma as a window. Mm-hmm. Like, that actually, if it's not a closed door, right, if the response is not to shut the door, um, to build a wall, to, like, do all of these things, like, the other one is, like, you can open yourself to, like, the experiences of other people. Mm-hmm. And maybe out of that, like if we were disciplined and actually really willing to do that and we were rigorous about it, maybe a different way of thinking about unity can emerge. Maybe a different thing. Like maybe it's not even even called unity. Maybe it's just like a gathering. Like let's just start with the gathering. Like what does that look like? Yeah. So when I write, like I'm very much interested in talking to other people who have experienced that like that's who I want to reach it's not like white people mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. like it's it's great if they also want to read it but like they're not my priority right 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 Yes. When when you because I was talking to Catherine um who's also in Pajuang and she she talked about how she met you through sanctuary and you were teaching a poetry work. You were teaching a poetry workshop for, yeah. um, like, I guess, a largely undocumented community. Um, and I, I wonder, like, these things that we're talking about right now, like reconciliation and all of these, um, you know, like, quote unquote, like highbrow um, words and and terminology. Like, I wonder, like, when you are dealing with a community that um uh, like forgive me if i'm like mm-hmm. not politically correct right now but <laughs> like if if like people are just thinking about survival like how do they how are they able to like write 
in a way that that's like you know poetry or I don't even know what I'm saying I guess my my question is I observe that there's mm-hmm. a lot of people in the Indonesian community who don't even um uh, really speak English because you can't actually survive like selling food and being in these informal job sectors not not needing to speak any English and sometimes like people actually exoticize you if you don't speak English and like mm-hmm. you make money from that um and mm-hmm. so like I'm, I'm curious about your process working you know like teaching poetry to 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 these groups of people (laughs) Mm. I mean I think that's the thing right it's like I didn't have a poetry workshop where people like my mom could come I had a poetry workshop where people like Catherine could come right and I'm conscious of that because like uh and I don't know I think that's that's a an excellent question it's like what is that conversation look like who is the right people to host that conversation like is it me like I don't think so not necessarily mm-hmm. with my mom my mom is one of these like factory workers you know she's worked for like she worked for 25 years minimum wages no she was laid off like how many times had to hustle to find another factory job. It's all lateral. There's like no promotion ever in sight. Um, you're right that like she couldn't speak English. Um, and that's not true. Like she speaks English. It's not the English that Americans would consider English, you know, proper English. It's not the English that's going to get published in the Massachusetts Review. But she speaks, she has her English. A lot of people have their own Englishes, right? And and it's the English actually that put the food that put food on the table. Mm-hmm. Like her English is my fucking hero, right? Actually, like in the factory jobs that she had, they wanted people who couldn't speak, who had distinct languages, because then it would be really hard for them to organize. It would be really hard for them to unionize. They can't get on the same page. You can pit them against each other. You can elevate one language group over another and keep people sort of like harming and envious of each other and having microaggressions all over the place. And that actually keeps the status quo going. So language is like absolutely access to language, what kind of language, what kind of diction, what kind of dialect, absolutely weaponized in all of these ways, particularly against immigrants, right? And our parents' generation, less so ours, because we get to command the master's language. And then there's also this kind of like liminal, this liminal is like the worst word. I hate that word. Like this transitional phase. There's kind of like the generation that comes and then they're as adults and where those kinds of economies of like, where, where it's like, this is where they fit into the economy. Mm-hmm. This is how they participate in the American capitalist economy. And then there's, and their language and all that, like I just said, is a part of how they fit. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the, the next people, <laughs> the children, the kids, the, the people who came as kids or like the first gen or like whatever that are like a mix of both the host society and what they inherited directly from their parents Mm -hmm. and including status status being one of those things that people can inherit right like uh in terms of undocumentation like lack of access to daca potentially and i think that is the narrow bandwidth that i was working with for sanctuary because that's the bandwidth that i can speak to Mm -hmm. right so as much as I want to like offer 
um, a workshop for like my mom and her coworkers. One, I don't know that that's what they need. I don't know that that's what they would want to spend their days, the, their Saturdays doing, you know? Um, there's a kind of like different access to class, the space, the time that they worked for so that the next generation would have a little bit of that spaciousness where poetry becomes imaginable in a different way, right? And it's not that my mom doesn't have a creative practice. Like she cooks, she invents dishes, she sells them, she makes money from it, more money than I make from my poetry because God bless her, she's a hustler. And also like um, what she does at her church, she like runs the Sunday school, she like leads the praise and worship team. And these are not just, they're not just religious practices, they're create, it's a creative practice. Mm. But that's where, that's the medium that she wants to work in. So I think it's really important to kind of like think about poetry in the widest sense possible. Mm -hmm. Like her life is a much, her life is like an amazing poem, you know, like in that sense. And it doesn't look like the poem, it it doesn't look like poems as like Americans imagine poetry to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, like, made me super emotional. Mm. <laughs> well, I have this, I mean, you said that imagination is still important. I do believe that imagination is still important. But but how, I mean, how important it is when you know that history and trauma keep repeating. It's just like a cycle of life. So, I mean, where do you find the courage to, you know, tell people, like, go, and have imagination when the world is, you know, crumbling. Mm. I mean, I wish I could tell people to have imagination. Like, mm-hmm. I wish I could take credit for that. But people already mm-hmm. have them. True. Right? Yeah. Like, people are but imagining. But to fuel them to, you know, mm. to express their imagination. Like, I mean. Hmm. I think I think about migration as, like, what's more imaginative than migration? Mm. Like we are, if we are here, it's because somebody migrated, whether it's us or our parents, right? Mm. What's more imaginative than migration? Mm. Domination, like coming to a place and be like, mine, that takes zero. That is the opposite of imagination. Like, like those motherfuckers who like came like Columbus and all those people, like that's all, they, they just came with, they, they came with a flag. Mm. There is no imagination required to just like extend the thing you already know. But actual immigrants, like I mean, they have to come and like work and 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 rebuild a life in a place that makes no sense to them, that is hostile to them, um, that doesn't understand them, that doesn't care about them. Actually, you know. So I think that it takes an immense amount of imagination and courage to do that. And for people to be like, like we think about like folks who send their children out across the water where they can sink. It's like Mm. the imagination that there is another side, Mm. you know, like you have to be able to imagine that there is another side for you to hope to reach the other side. Like it's inherent. Mm. So I think that it's always in us. I think what maybe you're asking for about is optimism or hope or a sense of that the imagination 
it's like, what is the feeling that's attached to the imagination? Because I don't know that anybody doesn't have, like, I think everybody just has it. It's yeah. kind of like, um, like imagination is, is like emotion, right? Like I can't give people emotion, like people have them. Um, yeah, I think imagination is very close to hopes, you know, because you imagine things you would like to have or like, I mean, not all the time, but people mm-hmm. prefer good stuff. People do. <laughs> because the ima- if the imagination is already there, and it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the feeling's already there. Yeah. What do you need to give yourself permission to do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess you're yeah. right. Yeah. Because that's the number one thing I think that, um, and again, like I feel, whatever, I'm generalizing a little bit, but this is also based on like reading a lot of like um, a bunch of like Indonesian women recently, but there's a common thread of how do we speak? Mm. How do we say the things that we need to say? And this is also a legacy, like that we keep second guessing ourselves and like, can we say the thing? Can we say the thing? Will this destroy everything if I say the thing? This is like part of the legacy of like the women's ideology that got passed down during the new order. This is part of the propaganda machine. Like the shit is in us. You know what I mean? Like the, the, Who's telling us that, that we can't or that it's wrong, except for the echoes in our heads? Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. I th- I think that is or a that there, there's there's not enough um, like role models of people who have given themselves, of women who particularly who have given themselves permission to do that. And so mm-hmm. like the, the canon works that we have... Um, we can refer to are all of these people who write things that are so like different from what we want to do I think something that like my mom's life has taught me is like a lot of things bear fruit in a much later in like the in the later generation and I think about that a lot because I think that's the work that's actually like the history, like that is the historical aspect of our work. Mm. Like stuff we do now is not, we may not see directly the impact of it. We can't because it takes like time. It just takes like critical mass, Mm. you know, um, for things to build up, but like where they emerge, it's like the more we say no to white people, the more like the, it'll be much easier for my generation, for my son's generation to perhaps not even have to deal with like stupid requests from white people because they would have learned to ask a different way. Yeah. And then the next generation will be able to do something else. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like, yeah. cause I, I do get frustrated. Like one of my frustrations actually for years was that like, I have to write about like, there's always some sort of historical context I have to give or some sort of historical education I have to give. I'm not a goddamn historian. Like, why is this my job? And meanwhile, all these like white women are just like pondering their cats on the fucking windowsills and like writing about that because they don't have to bother with like references, with context. You know what I mean? They don't have to teach anybody that this could mean a different thing. Um, Yeah. And I realized that I was just like spending a lot of stupid, like I was just expending a lot of energy being frustrated mm. when the thing's not going to change. Mm. I'm like me being frustrated about this just stops me from doing the work that I want to do. Mm. 
So how do I balance like where is, okay, like here's stuff for whatever reason that's like, that is part of my inheritance as like an Indonesian person, an Indonesian woman at this time in history in the 21st century. And I think when I understand myself as part of that longer lineage of articulation, (laughs) then I, then I understand that like, okay, like this is a choice and I don't get to be complete in this lifetime, Mm. but that doesn't mean I don't get to move. I don't get, you know what I mean? Like movement doesn't require completion. Because the flip side of it is that you become somebody who like totally denies who you are. Mm. Like Eddie Van Halen, like who knew that he was like half Indonesian. It's like you, like, you know what I mean? Like that the flip side of it is just like you do what white people want you to do. Yeah. Yeah. You fulfill their, you continually fulfill their, their destinies Mm. and their pictures of who you are. And that's the work, really. That's the long work. I mean, people like to talk about, like, some ultimate state of revolution. Like, no, this is the revolution. Like, those stupid, those, like, annoying daily choices that we make is about, like... the revolution. That's the revolution. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your new project in the future? <laughs> so let's, let's talk about... Let's talk so about what's your, your new, new project? Um, yes, I have a new uh, book of poems coming out this fall 2021 from Northwestern University Press. And it is, uh, it's like a lyric family history. Um, and not and in the sense of like the way history collides, right, with family Um like the way it shatters itself into family. Mm. And um, that's really what it's about. And um, I think one thing I'm very excited about this book is that, uh, so the book is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty, it's, it's a collection of poems, but then there's also like these four um, interludes in the book that are written as scenes. They're like screenplays and um of like speculative situations and they kind of like you know uh situations that uh go above and beyond the concerns of the book but one of them I actually co-wrote with my mom wow so it's her English um that shapes the diet that is the dialogue of that scene and I'm really really excited about it because um it was just such a beautiful process. I basically had this idea of like this, I think this is what the scene could look like. I wrote it in English and then I translated it to Indonesian and then I sent it to her and then she gave me feedback. She had her own thoughts about it. And then she translated it back to English um, in her English. So I'm really excited about it because I'm so proud that we like did this together. And, um, I've always wanted to have a representation of my mom's language, you know, and I didn't want to, and she's still, she's here, you know, I don't need to speak for her. Like, (laughs) um, and it was just like a wonderful thing to, to be able to do together. So that's my favorite thing about the book so far. Mm-hmm. So does does your mom does your mom have her Indonesian restaurant? Because you said she cooks a lot. 
My mom, after retiring last year, um, started her own, she caters from her own oh, home. So she makes, uh, yeah, so she has uh, a business in um, Vancouver now called Daporlani. And she has, so she makes like, she makes a new menu every week, like four items. And then people submit, you know, their requests. And mm. then she packages, she like makes it all. Mm. And it's all out of her kitchen. <laughs> so, so I guess like, should, should we ask the, the closing, closing questions, questions that we normally ask? Um, so I guess the first question is what are misconceptions, the biggest misconceptions about Bali that need to be dismantled? Um, biggest misconceptions about Bali. You know, this is actually a difficult thing to answer because Bali relies on misconceptions to survive. It's true. It's been actually really hard this past year seeing my friends struggle, you know, with livelihood. There's just like so many, uh, so many closures. Um, and people are like resilient as hell, you know, and people like are creative and we'll figure it out. And, and the travel restrictions and the awful, awful, absolutely horrendous behavior of white people currently on the island who are not following COVID-19 regulations. Like it's, it has had a severe impact on people in Bali. So I don't know that I can answer this question in the sense of like, you know, there's a narrative about it being a paradise that we need to dismantle. And what do we have to, but it's like the people who are going to pay for the man, dismantling of that narrative are the Balinese. So I don't, I don't feel like I want, if of course, like that's the first thing that comes into mind because it's so obvious and irritating, but it can, but it's irritating and obvious. Like the fact that I can feel that, like that is a privilege yeah. because I live here. And I get to be annoyed at my friends who are like, I want to go do a yoga retreat in Bali. You know, like I get to do that because I don't need that to live. Um, Whereas folks in Bali, many folks do. So I will, yeah, I'm going to pass on that. Yeah, I've read like headlines, I think like not long after the beginning of COVID that they opened... Uh, like a tourist beach where only international tourists can go and the local cannot go. I mean, Wait, like, is that even legal? I don't know. And I was so I mean, that's angry. Like effectively, that's effectively what the beaches are already. Yeah. 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 But the fact that now, I mean, that it's in uh, writing. I mean, it sounds like in the midst of COVID where people like haven't been go out for like months and then they opened the beach just for the, you know, mm-hmm. for Boulay, and it was like, yeah. I mean, it's I, it's like super, super angering. And also like, that's already the case. Yeah. Like we're not going to go to like Uta or Sanor or like anywhere and or see. Pictures, yeah. Like we're, we're not going to see anything but Bule like on, like over there. I remember going to the beach once yeah. in 2000, when I was there in 2013, I went to Kuta like one day. I sat on the sand for like two, a whole two minutes before a white person asked me if I would go get him a Pepsi. 
Yo, yo. So, oh my God. I am telling you, it is already the situation. Did you like yell at him? Like the audacity. I was like, I'm Korean, thanks. Like, you know, it's just, I can't, you know, like, it, no. And I feel the like every time I go just... to like Changu, yeah. like I feel like this kind of like reality distortion, like I feel like I'm in Bali, but all around me are like French people or Australian. And it was just like, and now it's Russian models because, you know, people come and go and it's like a wave of, of different groups coming to, and now it's, you know, dominated by Russian models. Anyway, so our second, second question. closing question is, what is your favorite Indonesian food? Or let's, let's put it like Balinese. It has to be Babi Guling. Like, I know that's so like... <laughs> I know that's so like typical, but like it, I mean, they make, but, and I don't mean just like, bubby, like it's like all aspects of the bubby ghouling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Satelili. Like the whole, yes. Like every part of the bubby, right? Because I remember going to, there was like this like restaurant that just opened. I don't know if it's still open actually, but I went there in 2013. Um, right after it's just, it was just, it just opened because, uh, um, I went with like a, a again like I was like a family friend took me, and uh, the whole meal like all three courses were from the bubby guling. Mm-hmm. So you have like a like a bubby appetizer, a bubby like several main courses for the bubby, and then you get bubby desserts. What is a bubby yeah. dessert? What is a bubby dessert? I can't even remember, man. Like I mean, it was like spicy. They had like like it was. There, definitely also the skin like the skin mm. separated out and like all like you know and it's like like there's like sambal um sambal mata and it's just like it's so it was so delicious and i was like dead the next day <laughs> i was like i can't get out of my stomach like it was so much fat and grease and um it was like excessive. It was too much pig, basically. <laughs> and my my body was just like freaking out the next day. And I was just like, I have to do this all over again. It's like <laughs> incredible. Like I don't care. So I think that is that is definitely one of them. Yeah, baby guling. Like I think in Bali, there's like a there's a kind of there's a freshness to the food. And bubby guling is probably, like, the only, like, heavy meal that I can think of. Um, and it's also so quintessentially, like, Bali, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, in the other islands, like, pork's not eaten. But a lot of, like, you, a lot of the foods are just, I find less, um, like, even the nasi jampur, like, the way the, the vegetables are, are the rica Yeah. It's, like, it's different it's less heavy, I feel, I find, than Japanese dishes. Um, and I really miss that kind of, like, I think of um, Indonesian food, is like all of it is, like, very, very hyper tasty, but there's a brightness to Balinese food that I really miss. You know, Ruchat Bali, like, it's just bright. Babi Gulings? Oh, I was just going to say, when I was a kid, because I, I actually don't think Matapa is Balinese. Yeah, I think it's all over Indonesia, no martabak. I yeah, martabak is pretty... Martabak manis. I just... Yeah, trangbulan. Yeah, 
Mulan. And but I remember when when I was a kid, um, this was like my favorite thing to do was like go out with my dad at night, like when it rained. Um, like you Jen and you yeah. go and um, you find some one of the vendors that have like matapa and it's like <gasps> hot and crispy and just yes. right there on the street. Like yes. that's my jam. I have to say, okay, so like Babi Guling is the num is like the one Indonesian dish that is so rare to find outside of Indonesia because you have like gado gado, ketoprak, soto, like uh, ikan rica, like yeah. all of these things. It's so easy to find at Indonesian restaurants in Europe and yeah. in in here in the U.S. But Babi Guling you never find. And it's also really hard to find good martabak, but martabak okay in Philly yeah. is the best <laughs> ever. <laughs> so good. As always, we encourage you to dig deeper about the topics we talked about, whether it's a non-aligned movement or the history of Chinese Indonesians, or the process of making babi guling, or the process of immigration for those with Indonesian passport. So, we're not paid to promote this, but if you are in Vancouver, Canada, check out Dapurlani, the homemade Indonesian cuisine catered to your home straight from Cynthia's mother's kitchen. And whenever you are in the world, Cynthia's new book will be out in fall of 2021. In the meantime, you can read her previous books, Salvage and Nomads of Salt and Hard Water, or visit her website to read her poems online. Thanks for listening. And until our next feast, we'll leave you with this. Annoying daily choices that we make about like... the revolution. That's the revolution. Yeah.